You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. You are listening to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I am Lewis Kornfeld, and tonight I am speaking with the great Caitlin Steitzer. Caitlin, thanks for talking. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. The great Caitlin Steitzer. Yeah. Thank you very much, Lewis. You're oh. welcome. I'm here with the great Lewis Kornfeld, oh, everybody. Oh, thank you. It feels nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the work that you do using improv and using theater for um, lifelines. Uh, um, and I know that you have a great passion for social work, uh, um, which I'm super interested in. It's a really um, heartfelt, beautiful use uh, um, of the work that we do or the work that we aspire to do with like incredibly uh, um beneficial application. So could you explain Lifelines and and what you guys are doing? Sure, yeah. So Lifelines is a community arts project in the neighborhood of Sunset Park. We serve 6th grade through 12th grade students. Um, We are based in two sort of different campuses, but like five blocks away from each other. Um, And we provide after-school arts programming uh, Uh, like a diverse, we have a diverse menu of uh, different arts programming for our students. Um, So visual arts, uh, music, music production, uh, dance on in all different styles, uh, theater and improv theater, um, craft, uh, and then just sort of like a lot of mishmash um, of different sort of like art forms on any given day. Um, and it's all sort of filtered through a social work lens. Uh, and that's because Lifelines is part of a, a larger social work agency called the Center for Family Life in Sunset Park. Um, we provide, and the Center for Family Life provides a ridiculous amount of services also to the neighborhood of Sunset Park. Something like one in four or one in five people that you would see walking down the streets in uh, the neighborhood of Sunset Park in South Brooklyn have accessed our services at some point. Wow. Um, but, you know, Lifelines is just one program. There's like, a oh my gosh, this is embarrassing, but something like nine school-based programs. We just recently um, expanded. Uh, and we have family counseling and an emergency food pantry. Um, uh, so a whole, a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then CFL is part of SCO Family of Services, which is an even larger social work agency. So that's sort of just like the context. Um, but what I do specifically for Lifelines is I am a social worker, but I also function as a theater specialist. So I have taught uh, sixth grade acting. So I teach acting to sixth graders sometimes. Um, I teach acting in our summer camps. Um, and uh, we use improv uh, for sort of a special group we have in the spring called the Repertory Company, um, which I can talk about more in depth. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 please do. Uh, this is fascinating. Uh, mm-hmm. You've told me about this before, and it's just really amazing. If you could describe to people listening how the Repertory Company functions. Sure. So um, the Repertory Company is part of our high school program, and it is an audition-based group. It's um, usually between like 18 and 20 kids who get into the program. And it's sort of a two times a week intensive training in singing, dancing, and acting. And um, the acting is improv acting. And what they are aiming to do is to create an original, partially improvised play with song and dance that reflects um, sort of like the struggles, uh, but also the vitality of the Sunset Park community, mm-hmm. sort of like through a teenage perspective. So the show, so what happens is the kids, um, we go through a process where we end up sort of settling on different themes and the students develop characters for themselves. And the show sort of follows a narrative arc um, that generally stays the same. Um, but the scenes themselves within the arc are completely improvised. Mm. Um, and 
Along with that, the show also incorporates our entire Lifelines program, so all of our 6th graders through our 12th graders. So there might be a scene that happens in our show, and to sort of highlight some of the themes of that scene, um, we might have our 7th grade group come out and perform like a dance that they've been working on all spring. Um, uh, So we end up having, you know, like a 120 to 150 kids on stage singing and dancing at the same time. It's like a boggling number of people. (laughs) And they're sixth graders, some of them. (laughs) Think about it. It's insane. (laughs) Uh, It it seems to be like equal parts artistic inspiration and sort of uh, military field marshalling. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, well, uh, before I get into like technicalities, mm-hmm. can you give like uh, um, uh, like a flavor of the kind of work that you'll see? Like what kind of themes do you guys typically explore? Oh man. Um, well, I can talk a little bit about our show last spring, which was called Dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the characters was a girl who was figuring out how to come out to her parents um, we had sort of wanted to put the issue of uh, a young person struggling with their sexual orientation identity in the show for a long time. Um, and a lot of kids that we had worked with in the past wanted to too, but every time we sort of talked about it, we talked about, well, do we think you know the audience can handle it? Because we also perform the show for every single student at Sunset Park High School mm-hmm. where we're based. And a lot of times students were like, no, I don't think so. I feel really uncomfortable. Like our school's not ready for it yet. Like um, it's going to be too distracting. And last year people were like, you know what? I think our school is like ready for this. And uh, we had a student who felt comfortable playing the issue. So it was a, a, a girl who was figuring out how to like come out to her mom. And we sort of saw her story through uh, her interactions with friends. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was like, that was like one theme. Um, we often have, you know, kids playing parents as well to try and get the parents' point of view. Mm-hmm. In the last show, there was a storyline of uh, a girl who's coming home after her first year of college and wasn't sure if she wanted to go back, which is something that we've been encountering a lot at the high school. Mm-hmm. A lot of our kids are going to school and they're going away uh, from home for sort of the first time and they'll go for a year and they'll really struggle. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, we were trying in the show to sort of address that and bring that conversation out for current students um, before they had to sort of like live it, I guess. How do you guys go about generating what's going to be explored for the show? Is it an open forum conversation with students or, or how, how do you, how do you go? What oh are the first gosh. steps that you take? Oh my gosh. It's so fascinating. So the other thing I should say about this whole process is that um, uh, it the, these shows were before I started working at, uh, Center for Family Life and Lifelines um, uh, and SEO, uh, I I had a class in my social work school with a woman named Julie Stein Brockway. Um, and she taught this class called The Purposeful Use of Activities. And she one day brought uh, all of these improv books into her class. And I was like, oh my gosh, what? what is this woman doing? And um, throughout the course of the class, I learned that she was the co-director of this agency and that she also directed these shows and that she'd been doing it for like 30 years. Um, So she invented this style of show um, just like through trial and error Mm. and through a real purposeful thought of like what it was she wanted to create. So the process is really unique, I think. Um, We... We do it a little bit differently depending on uh, like the group, you know, like sometimes um, we'll set, we'll sort of have structured brainstorms. Um, we split the group up into four and there's one big piece of paper with like what do teens struggle with, you know, related to this theme, you know, like if the theme of the show is summer, like uh, what do teens struggle with related to this theme or what do parents struggle with or, you know, what do so-and-so, like we'll have prompts. I guess taking it back a step, usually uh, we sort of think about what the theme is before we go into the process. Okay. Um, but it's usually so broad, like mm-hmm. dreams or summer or um, windows or, you know, like levels. It's like a very, it's just like almost a framework. Is this more or less just to kind of jumpstart the process? Yeah. Okay. Just to jumpstart it. Yeah. 
Um, so sometimes we'll have a brainstorm, but a lot of what we do is uh, like on the feet. Like, is that what you say? What do you say? On your sure. feet? Yeah, on Working green, on yeah. your feet. Yeah. Uh, we work on our feet with yeah. the kids and uh, we do uh, just a wide variety of improv scenes. Um, so we call them back-to-back scenes and we'll just have all the kids sort of stand in a circle and pair up and stand back-to-back with someone and we'll give them a relationship and everyone goes, uh, they're doing their scenes sort of simultaneously. So they're just concentrating on their scene partner while other people are sort of, you know, acting all around them. So they're not being audience to each other. They're not being audience to each other. So we do it first so everyone can sort of work simultaneously and warm up and try some things out. Um, And then we'll spotlight them and then we'll sit and we'll watch them. And sort of through that, then we have a discussion with the group um, and with staff. Like, what are some themes that we saw? Like, what's interesting? Do we want that in our show? Hmm. Um, do we want this in our show? You know, and sometimes we don't want that in our show or we don't want this in our show. So. Is that uh, a choice partly a question of uh, um, helping to kind of diminish self-consciousness, helping to not start them in a place where they're feeling like performers, but instead mm-hmm. have a place where they're connecting with each other? Yeah. It's a really smart way to do that. It's, uh, Julie Stein Brockway is really, really smart. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, she's a, an incredibly, uh, purposeful and one of the most thoughtful and hardworking uh, people I've ever had the pleasure of working with and yeah. working under. And uh, um, yeah, you know, I, it's sometimes it's really hard to, to partner with her cause she's just so good at uh, this work. Um, but it's because she's been working hard at it for over 30 years. So. That's interesting. What, um, how does that make that hard for you? Uh, oh, cause it's, you know, uh, Working with teenagers can be hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so sometimes if I feel like I'm not having a particularly good session, uh, I'll just feel like, oh man, God, I suck. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I really suck at this. Yeah. I'm not a good social worker. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know. I want to come back to a not particularly good session in just a second, but I want to sure. backtrack for a sec. So these kids have auditioned to be here and do this. Mm-hmm. Um, what what have you found for them is the appeal of doing the program? Like what gets them excited and motivated to want to be part of this and to want to create the show? Mm, a lot of different things. Um, a lot of them aren't traditionally theater kids. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, Which I can only assume is way more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's real cool. Yeah. Like it, we're just starting at the high school now cause the, um, the high school is new. Mm-hmm. It's uh, only about six years old. Um, and before it was built, Sunset Park was one of the only neighborhoods in New York, like I think maybe one of two that didn't have a, a local high school. Mm. Um, so uh, what, what do the kids get out of it? I think they would tell you um, that they get a lot of things out of it. I think they would say they get a chance to... Uh, create something really unique and have their voice be honored and heard. Mm-hmm. I think when we're doing the work well, they come out uh, through the other side of the process thinking that. Um, I think they have an experience where they feel like really supported and, and listened to by some caring adults who work hard on their behalf. Um, they get to learn how to sing, dance, and act better. Mm -hmm. Um, The thrill of performing in front of 500 people at a time, you know, which is what our auditorium seats. Yeah. Um, We go on these sort of amazing camping trips to work on the show. And so they have those experiences and, you know, they, they form a really tight bond. Also for doing our work really well, you know, the ensemble itself forms a really tight bond and people leave with really close friendships. And um, so... So they basically have every reason in the world to want to be part of it. Every reason in the world to be part of it. Yeah. yeah. Like we always say, oh, this looks real good on your college resume, but there's so, you know, there's so much more. It's such a transformative experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. We take them on two camping trips. I mean, it's, you know, it's incredible. The, the thing that I find so interesting, other than like, it just sounds like a really incredible show and a really incredible experience for everybody, including I can only imagine the workshop leaders as well. Um, 
But it's also really fascinating to me because it goes so much to the heart of where improvisation grew from, uh, uh, that you're pretty close to the core of why people started improvising to begin with, that original impetus to to create an improvisational theater and something that reflects the sensibilities and the voices of the people that are making up that theater. And I know that you've done a lot of work uh, um uh, on the applicability of improv to social work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Could I ever? Um, yeah. I uh, started doing improv in high school and I found it to be very personally helpful and uh, healing. And I found, just felt it made me a better person. Mm-hmm. And um, I read uh, Keith Johnstone's Impro for Storytellers. My father bought me that book when I first started doing improv. And he had this idea that, yeah, improv should be this like really amazing, like beautiful um, theater for uh, like the working class or just for anyone. And that I was like, okay. And so I was always sort of like looking for that. And um in in improv or in different social work contexts because um, at some point in college I learned, I figured out I wanted to be a social worker. Um, and it wasn't until I was at a Hunter College School of Social Work when I was taking Julie's class when um, I sort of started looking more deeply at uh, Viola Spolin's book and her work and learning more about where she started um, which was the same place that social work got started, um, actually. So, at Hull House? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, at Hull House in Chicago. So Hull House was a settlement house, which is the Center for Family Life um, is a settlement house model. Um, so Hull House was uh, a settlement house in the United States, uh, founded by Jane Adams, who's the godmother of social work. And it has this whole idea that the work is in the community and uh, the work is to better the community and transform the community, but you do that through uh, purposeful, meaningful work with individuals and families and empowering people to, uh, you know, do that for themselves, for the community to lift itself up. Um, and Viola Spolin started started her work there. And uh, it was, you know, working with immigrant families and young people and seeing improv as a way to help people find their creative self and build confidence and be able to make connections to other people. Um, uh, I think improv helps you live life a little more fearlessly um, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I, um, so I, I was really excited about learning that, uh, that improv and social work had the same birthplace because I often felt when I told people like what I did, the two things that I sort of like to spend my time doing, uh, people would often comment with like, huh, that seems weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh, weird. Those are so different. That Mm -hmm. seems so different. Uh, and it, and I never thought it did. And then I was proven that I was right. Yeah. Uh, and that they're not so different. It's so interesting that they have like twin lineage like that, mm-hmm. you know, cause it, it, they're just in, in terms of like Spolin's work on getting people to relate to each other very openly and getting people to be comfortable using their own voice and getting people to like the whole theoretical underpinning of her work, I think still holds up really well to this day. And this idea that we're constantly um, measuring ourselves up by these artificial standards that are being imposed on us that don't actually measure the potential of, of who we are Mm -hmm. or what we have in us or what we're capable of. It's simply a convenience for the system, whatever that may be to kind of uh, um, move us down the conveyor belt. Mm-hmm. And we internalize those standards and we measure ourselves up against those standards. And we learn all of these very creative ways to limit ourselves over the course of our lives and cut ourselves off from not only our own creative sources, but cut ourselves off from kind of a sense of like uh, uh, 
empowerment and who we are individually. So there's something so fascinating to me about, uh, um, about the fact that those two things are kind of like the yin and yang at the core of, of something beyond just what improv is. It, it goes back to this other more meaningful impulse to try to make the world a slightly better place and try to make people slightly more open. Mm-hmm. And I do agree. Like it's a really common thing among improvisers to have that feeling that improv has made you a better person in some way or a fuller person in some way. What do you think that is? Why, what was the transformative effect it had on you? How, if you're able to even like isolate that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, it boiled down down for me i think the most impactful first improv lesson i took away was um to uh embrace failure Mm. as uh, uh, a necessary thing uh that means you're trying something new um and johnstone wrote about this a lot that um you know part of why he developed theater sports the way he did um was like this short form format and there was sort of like these judges that would like honk scenes that were bad. And, um, and he said like, look, everyone has bad scenes, you know, like uh, deal with it. It's fine. It's great. It's going to happen to every single person. And if you don't, then you're probably not stretching yourself enough. Um, uh, you know, I don't want the audience to sit through it. So we'll, you know, like get it out of there, but you know, it honks, then you cheer and you have a great time and you move on to the next thing. And, uh, for me, uh, you know, and I'm still like this a little bit, but especially in high school, I was so uh, afraid of failing and doing bad. And um, and this idea that uh, you can mess up and get something useful out of it and still be okay. And it doesn't mean that you're bad at what you do. It's just like a, a single instance because yeah. that's what being human is. I don't know. For me, that was... That was like the biggest, that was the biggest thing yeah. that I first started. Personally. Succeeding and not failing are not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. And it's interesting how much a person can be motivated by the desire not to fail rather than the desire to succeed. Because uh, um, like a desire to succeed or or like, a, and even that word, like I've read enough Spolin where like a, red flag goes up in my mind whenever I say the word succeed. It's something mm-hmm. that you just kind of, as an improv teacher, you try not to have as part mm-hmm. of your vocabulary. But but that like that impulse that you have just as a person to try things and to pursue your goals and to recognize your goals, when it's coming from a really honest place and a really organic place, um, failure is just kind of like part of the process. You fail and you you get misdirected and then you kind of like continue to try, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're motivated by not wanting to fail, it's just like you shut out the door, you, you, shut, out, you shut the door on any possibility that doesn't seem like it's going to be guaranteed to show you up in a good light. Yeah. And so you're closing yourself off to... to any possibility of discovering what's really going on inside of you, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think so, and I think that's why you know that's why I think I, I think everyone should take improv classes, and I think it should be contextualized as you know the skills that you take from improv can help you in your everyday life. Because I think, like for a lot of the kids that I work with, like the failure that they've seen in their lives is so devastatingly real, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's not like Sunset Park High School is a good school. Sometimes people ask me like, oh, so what's your program? Like you work with like underprivileged kids, like you work with like the bad kids, you know? And it's like, no, it's just, it's open to anyone in this neighborhood. It just happens that this is a neighborhood filled with people. And so they have some pretty amazing stories and some pretty amazing struggles, you know? And uh, a, a lot of the neighborhood of Sunset Park is immigrant. So a lot of our kids, um, come from working class or poor families, uh, uh, and there's, you can tell when you sort of talk to the teenagers about like what their dreams are, a lot of what seems to be motivating them is they just don't want to fail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, I want to go to college. Why? Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like I think that's what I'm supposed to do to not fail. Like I just want to support my family. And it's, and I think it's because, uh, when you've seen like, 
real failure, when you know it's like a real, real possibility, you know, like when there is not a strong safety net because your family's all in another country, you know, or uh, just disconnected to a lot of your family, or you come from a family where your parents both work, but for some reason, you uh, your family's still on food stamps, you know, even though people are working full-time and overtime, you know, the possibility of things going really, really wrong is very, very real. Mm-hmm. And so um, I find for a lot of the students I work with, the idea of, there's like both this, there's this weird duality of like magical thinking of, well, I'm going to be an NBA player, you know, mm-hmm. even though I'm not on the high school basketball team. Um, and uh, uh, I think a fear of like, of, of actual dreaming. Yeah. There's like, I'm going to dream for this bit thing that's so impossible. I, I know I'm probably not going to get it, but they have no idea of like what they could dream for. Yeah. And that was, all, so taking you back to the repertory company, that was sort of what we were trying to explore um, with the show last year, with just this idea that everyone has a dream somewhere. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you just need to work a little bit to find it, or sometimes your dreams don't match up with your parents. Um uh, yeah. Well, that is like even being able to tell the difference between the kind of dreams that you have, a kind of dream that motivates you to act mm-hmm. versus the kind of dream that is actually a really dangerous thing because it 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 uh, is the kind of dream that lets you not have to acknowledge for another day whatever fears and insecurities you have that are kind of stopping you from acting. It's much easier to fantasize about being a basketball player than it is to have to face up to the fact that you might not be Mm -hmm. great. It's much easier to fantasize about being a rock star who everybody falls in love with Mm -hmm. than face up to the limitations that you're getting older and older every day. And, and you know what I mean? Like less of these skills are actually tangibly manifesting and, and it turns you away from the possibilities of of what an achievable reality can be for you, mm-hmm. and that's why, and that's what I I think is so great about improv because I think it teaches you this idea, and I think people who come from uh, uh, maybe more. I don't know. I really hate like labels, but it's like for someone who comes from like a stable background, I think you have this idea of like, well, I can try something out mm-hmm. and it might not work out, and, mm-hmm. but something else will. Mm-hmm. I'll probably learn a lesson ar- along the way. And I think improv sort of teaches you that too. So if you don't have the benefit of having that stable background, right? Of having like this knowledge of no matter what, I I feel like I have a, a, a social network that can support me, mm-hmm. even if I fail pretty badly. Like I have people who are going to help pick me up. Um, I think improv can sort of fill, I think it can fill in that gap because I think in so many, in so many instances that I can recall, I will go out and uh, start doing a scene and have one idea for where the scene is going to go. And it veers so off course, but in a totally wonderful and delightful way, Mm -hmm. you know, like you, um, you also learn to just not be so, uh, uh, I don't know, like, Married to the outcome. Yeah, married to the outcome. Like able to to let yourself change when it needs to. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't become a scary thing. Yeah. Um, well, that's another thing that like I, 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 I think it's really important to approach your scene work from a perspective that the scene you're about to do has every possibility mm-hmm. of a wonderful encounter with with these two characters, mm. you know, there's a kind of uh, um, romantic aspect to it. Not necessarily that we're going to love each other, but that sense of like, this might be, this might end up being the best night of my whole life with you, you know, mm. whatever's going to happen. And it, it turns like even small moments on stage into like possibilities for, um, uh, for like miraculous things to enter into your life. I'm talking about from the point of view of these characters, like mm-hmm. two strangers on a train in a scene, there's every possibility that they might connect together on some level that ends up deeply affecting both of them. You just don't know. Mm-hmm. But if you go into a scene with the assumption that that possibility is there, 
the likelihood of it happening is far, far higher than if yeah. you don't make that assumption going into the scene. And and once that starts to become kind of second nature to you, that becomes part of your daily practice of improvising, mm-hmm. you start to notice moments in real life where that kind of thinking automatically kicks in. I don't know if you have that experience too, but that's been a big takeaway for me from years and years of improvising, that mm-hmm. it does that thing in your brain where you just start to assume that like that uh, 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 that wonderful thing that's going to mean so much to you is not necessarily come to you dressed mm-hmm. as a wonderful thing. It's going to be some little side thing that at first doesn't seem important, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, but, and I think that's also a really important uh, life skill to have that um, a lot of students I work with re- also really struggle with, you know? Yeah. It's like, uh, I'd never felt so old as when I started working at Lifelines because um, the middle school students that I worked with, I would sort of go up and say hi. And when I first started working there, they were immediately distrustful. I was like, oh my God, they see me as an adult who is out to get them. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of, we sort of see our job at Lifelines is helping helping them see that that's not true, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that um, that that not everyone is out to get them. Yeah. And even though adults might be out there like setting limits and making some rules for their safety that, you know, we're still willing to be flexible and have a conversation. I don't know, I'm just thinking of discipline in, in the program. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, which is, yeah, it's like what you were talking about, right? Like it's that uh, Lifelines is definitely a, a dance between... Um, the uh, uh, creative, like this big creative process and like military drills, like you, you really have to have both. Well, that's gotta be like such a, a scary thing for you guys as the facilitators to, to be kind of straddling that line because even like the best behaved sixth graders are still sixth graders. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? Like even with the best of intentions, you're at a period in your life right now where you, you're a handful. Yeah. Um, what has been your experience? How long have you been with Lifelines? Uh, I have been uh, there for four years. Okay. I've just been starting my fourth year. How do you, uh, um, uh, how do you keep that balance in a way that you're comfortable with for yourself between facilitating open dialogue and an open flow of creativity, but also, uh, um, creatively, uh, uh, incorporating discipline as a fruitful, creative part of someone's life, and not as just the imposition of uh, a grown-up who who is out to get me. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my gosh, that's a, a very hard one to put my finger on. Um, I think you know, and we, and that's for like all of the grade levels that we work with. You know, like when we work with the high school. I think it's almost more with the high school actually that I worry about that than the middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, the sixth graders, uh, when they're testing boundaries, it's sort of like we're doing tableau work and they're not like staying still, mm-hmm. you know, or it's like someone in the audience will make a fart noise, you mm-hmm. know, it's sort of, it's sort of like at that um, level and at the high school level, it, it's a lot more tricky because there when when they push limits it can get into like personal territory mm-hmm. you know like we're we're really cautious that this we're really cautious about making sure that the repertory company work and the improv work we do at the high school doesn't become psychodrama mm-hmm. that students are not acting out their personal mm-hmm. life experiences um because this is for a lot of different reasons that I can go into a little bit. Um, But I think like what we do is um, for every level, we sort of set those expectations up top. So it's often a conversation with varying levels of language, depending on the grade that you're working with of how, you know, our, the reason why we're doing acting is we're trying to build all of the wonderful things that we've been talking about this whole podcast, you know, that Viola Spolin saw improv as a tool for. Like we do improv because it helps build connections to one another and it helps you um, 
Uh, learn how to be open to the world and trust yourself and be confident in your ability and not be afraid of messing up in front of other people. And this is the reason why. So this is all the things that we're trying to do. And to do it, I need you guys, 6A, you know, or whatever sixth grade group I'm working with, I need you, 6A, to... Uh, to do these things, you know, we need to be a respectful audience. You know, can can you guys tell me how we do that? You know, like, can you guys tell me what you want from everyone in this group when you're performing? Can you guys tell me um, what we need to do to make this safe space, uh, this space safe so people feel like they can express themselves truly and creatively? And if you bring it back to that, to, you know, the reason I'm getting on people for, talking while someone else is performing or making that fart joke while someone's being a statue is because that's going to make people self-conscious and it's preventing someone else from uh, truly like being able to discover themselves, you Mm -hmm. know, and take that risk. Because it's like you think about it in the classes here at the Magnet and how nervous, you know, like some of these adults are going into um, a class and they're performing, you know, in front of a group of strangers and they paid for this class mm-hmm. and they have lives outside of this class. And when you're working with high school students and middle school students, they do not. Their peer group is their life. And for them to be taking a risk, I think, in front of, you know, like other students is just such a huge thing yeah. that you just completely forget about. Well, it's even like the nature of that show of of like, you're not just putting on a show where you're playing, you're not doing like, Oklahoma or something. You're not putting on this character. You're sharing things that are are impactful about your life with people. So it's just a, an unbelievably vulnerable position to put yourself in in front of 500 of your peers. Okay. Uh, um, how are the shows received? I you know it varies, but for the most part, really positively. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we always. We always perform for all of Sunset Park High School, and then we have two community performances that um, are very well attended, and people come back. And um, last year, we had a portion of the show where the audience could interview the characters mm-hmm. at two different parts of the show, um, and people really liked that part. I mean, people people talk about the shows. Um, uh, yeah, no, I I. I I want to say well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's just it, mm-hmm. it it's such a courageous thing to do. Mm-hmm. And and there definitely is something to the idea that like courage begets courage, you know? Mm-hmm. And and it, it's like another one of those things that I find really interesting about like the connection. Like going back to to Spolin and mm-hmm. Johnstone for a second. Um their attitudes on improv are very different in a multitude of ways. But one thing that that strikes me that they have in common is their insistence on experience, on the experience of where you are. Spolin uh, uh, describes learning in her Spolin kind of quasi-mystical terms as the, the ability to penetrate one's environment. Mm-hmm. And there's a great part in, um, I think, improv where... Keith Johnson talks about if you want to teach uh, someone how to paint a tree, the best thing you can do is take them outside and let them touch a tree. Go have that experience. They both have that thing in common of having a direct experience that's unfettered from other people's interpretations or other people's sensibilities, and you draw your own conclusions from that experience. Even more than that, like in Spolin's book, that idea of you having an honest experience in this moment, penetrating the environment, however you want to interpret whatever the hell that means, Mm -hmm. Uh, um, that's the moment where we see you very clearly. Having that where you're not up there playing to other people's expectations or playing a role, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And hiding behind this this thing. What you're doing for ego gratification, for approval, whatever. Actually letting yourself have an experience in front of other people runs that risk of letting people actually see you kind of with your pants down. They yeah. see you, they see the real you. And it's such an enormous risk to take because then you really actually do run that challenge of people kind of laughing at you yeah. in a very painful way. But the other thing that you can take from it is like when you see someone who actually has the courage to do it, it tends to encourage 
the people around you, when you see someone have a real moment and a real experience or share something real about themselves, it actually, uh, this is going to sound so stupid, but it makes the collective reality that we're all a part of right now actually feel real and not just feel like a bunch of people in a room trying to impress each other with these kind of enchantments that we throw up about ourselves. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. What a great way of saying it. Yeah. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to. Go ahead, man. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, I, there's, there'll always be people. I mean, the thing, you know, the risk and we always, this always happens. And we also always try and prepare the kids for this. It's like, there's always the risk of people who, um, are jealous of the show or, uh, it hits too close to home or people Mm. who just like, don't like it and are mean, you Mm. know, and, and that happens sometimes in the school. Um, there was like one year, uh, um, where, uh, like right, we were doing two shows in a row and like right after one of the shows, this, uh, one of the, one of our cast members got like pretty, uh, uh, was like threatened in the lunchroom. Like she was just getting lunch and some girl just came up to her and was like really like getting into her, you know, and it was supposed to be for something like outside of the show, like some sort of outside drama or Mm -hmm. something. And I just remember, you know, like Julie coming in and saying, you know, this girl is saying it's about this other thing, but it's not. It's someone who's being jealous and trying to tear you down and trying to shake you up. And the best thing you can do is show them that you are still this fabulous, like wonderful performer and actor. And you have this amazing show that you're going to put on. And I think the show also serves to, um, uh, in addition to being this amazing process, um, have this product that people can really funnel their energy into. And so then... You know, you're teaching people through improv, you know, don't be afraid of failure, you know, take these risks, try these things. Um, And then our hope is that we're rewarding them for that Mm -hmm. by delivering a product that they're really, really proud of. So, yeah, I I, sort of to go back once more to the question of how it's received, uh, you know, I think we're doing something Right. We mm-hmm. have, you know, our program is growing. We're having to double our, we're doubling our um, middle school program. You know, like we're, we're doing that and we're growing our high school program, the troops uh, that we work with on the high school level. There's more people involved in our high school program than ever before. So I feel like we're doing something, something right. Um, yeah. So that's, that's maybe how we can look at it. It's yeah. just like how many people come back and how, how many people come and stay in this program and yeah. All that being said, it should also be pointed out that you happen to be an amazingly hilarious improviser and a great comedian. Uh, um, I'm sort of like curious about that too, because so many of the improvisers who who I know are, are you know, uh, um, using improv to generate comedy and generate yeah. characters and you so do such a lovely job of straddling these two worlds that that go back to the same kind of yin yang twins mm-hmm. but have clearly branched off in two very different directions mm-hmm. uh, um what is that experience like for you to have one world in the realm of of kind of improv for self-expansion, self-understanding, self-improvement, and also improv in the world of you're creating comedy product for paying audience who want to be laughing and, 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 and seeing fantastical ideas develop uh, on the spot. Yeah. Um, if you even feel a, a disconnect between yeah. those two worlds and oh. far be it for me to put things in your mouth, put <laughs> words in your mouth. Um, yeah, I, I, sometimes I feel a disconnect. I think there's definitely times where, um, you know, and and Lewis, you know this because uh, I the rehearsal that you coach is on a Monday afternoon, and I have to leave work early, and that's something I worked out. I think sometimes I feel a disconnect, and it's like, you know, am I spending too much time on comedy? Am I not able to focus as much as I want to on you know the social work? Um, uh, that's more of the disconnect, you mm-hmm. know, or like, am I am I putting my time in the right places. Right. Um, and how I like justify it is uh, one, it's just really personally gratifying, you know, performing improv is 
the greatest high, you know, I've ever known. Um, and I, I also see it as like a yin yang. Like I see that the exercises that I learn, you know, uh, through rehearsals and, uh, through big sibling classes or, uh, uh, teaching classes or whatever, um, I take back to my agency. Um, and, uh, the, the connections that I make with people through this, you know, like I try and also bring back to the Sunset Park community. Like um, I invite people to come speak in our school when it's appropriate. And the Magnet's been so generous at hosting different events for Lifelines communities. Like we put on a few shows specifically for the Lifelines audiences, which are highlights of these kids' lives. You know, I'm working with a ninth grader now who first saw like uh, an afternoon show at the Magnet Theater four years ago and she still talks about how funny it was when uh, I picked up a line of paper from the floor that had something written on it and the next line in the scene I had to say was I'm sexy and I know it mm-hmm. you know like it's still like Caitlin remember when you said I'm sexy and I know it it's like these are things that kids remember so um, it's, it's the little things it's really. the little things yeah <laughs> like oh, I I do remember that yeah. yeah I do remember that scene um so I you know I I try to make them involved as as much as possible it's also interesting like in the creative work um with my theater partner with Julie you know she's been doing the work for so much longer and she is so good at tuning into like the issues of the show um and uh I I think what I bring is um, like ensemble. Uh, well, no, I don't even know what I want to say that. Uh, what I want to say is like I tend to lean more towards the funny, like in the rep company. Mm-hmm. So like um, I have a knack for finding different theatrical devices that might like lighten the mood in the show or bring some energy. Or we always have sort of like some comedic characters as well, like you know, like a pack of guy friends, and they're trying to pump their friend up while he like asks out this girl, you know. Um, and so that's a dual. That's a thing that I struggle with sometimes. Is sometimes I worry when I'm working with a rep company that I'm not as strong as uh, bringing out like the dramatic work, like the dramatic improv, mm-hmm. just because that's also not a muscle that I'm working um, in my performing life, in my creative life. You know, the muscle I'm working is the comedic improv. Yeah. Um, uh, even though you know, I think a lot of the groups I work with, we also try and push ourselves to to be real and to be grounded and to uh, have a lot of heart with when the piece calls for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, going back to what you were saying before about like just learning that lesson that failure is okay, that mm-hmm. you can pick yourself up and brush yourself off and you're fine. And it doesn't have to be, um, you don't have to be afraid of your failure. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a broader picture, um, it's one of like the valuable roles that comedy in general kind of plays is, is you laugh at people's behavior. Um, obviously to varying degrees, there are hostile mean spirited laughs, but a lot of like really good, healthy laughter, laughter that doesn't feel like it's at poking at somebody's expense. Uh, um, to me has that effect where what it does is it kind of like shows you certain things about the way people act that, aren't great or don't show you in the best light, but it makes you lighten up about it in yourself. Mm-hmm. You see how stupid can, some a bunch of guys can be when they're trying to talk a friend up into asking this girl out. And it makes it easier when you recognize yourself acting in that way. When you recognize this kind of like thing about yourself, it's like maybe it doesn't show you in the most flattering light, but it lets you lighten up and brush it off and not get so hung up on feeling shitty about whatever your, your warts, you know, your, mm-hmm. you know. Um, um, so I feel like there's something like really valuable about honoring that for people too, that like, because you're, you're, you're showing a preference for lighter or funnier stuff mm-hmm. in my mind, doesn't invalidate the dramatic side of stuff. It, yeah. it, a lot of times it makes the dramatic side of stuff more uh, palatable, easier mm-hmm. to take. But there's also another thing with that too, which is like 
comedy is predicated on there being a kind of distance between you and the character that you're watching and between you and the character that you're playing. Like a lot of comedy, it's fun to laugh at other people being in trouble. It's fun to laugh at other people's pain. It's fun to laugh at other people fucking things up, but always with the understanding that there is a space that makes it okay. Mm -hmm. If it's too close and you actually be, find yourself in a place where you're laughing at that person, it now becomes this hostile thing. It's no longer laughing out of kind of a love of that character is laughing at that character. And that to me ties back into why psychodrama can be such a dangerous thing is, mm -hmm. is psychodrama lacks a certain distance between what you're creating and who you are uh, um, that has uh, um, something a little bit more like dangerous at the core of it. Yeah. Since you have seen, I'm sure, a lot more psychodrama than I have, I'm, I'm curious where you draw that distinction. Yeah, I, I don't even think that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I was as you were talking about, I was like, you know, I... I know what psychodrama is, but I was like, but what have I really seen of it? I mean, I know that there's, you know, like theater of the oppressed, which mm -hmm. is, um, uh, has, uh, different schools within it that sort of might fall into like a psychodrama mm -hmm. category. Um, and theater of the oppressed is, uh, Augusta Boal's, mm -hmm. um, sort of like, uh, improv based problem solving activist theater that draws from real life experience with people playing out their real, real stories on stage or, or and also very based in asserting yeah. your sense of community with each other yeah. too. Yeah. No, theater of the oppressed is I think like really, really great. Um, but what we do is, is very, very different. Um, I think what we'll do is in our shows, there might be a scenario that is similar to what someone is experiencing in the cast. Like for example, um, the girl who, uh, uh, her her character's name was Serenity, the character of Serenity coming out to her mom. Um, uh, the actress was really nervous about getting it right, about mm -hmm. making it feel authentic. Um, and there was another student in our cast who was gay and was out at school and out to his parents. And so on one of our camping trips, we had one of our rehearsal sessions, like a full like hour rehearsal session that was really just sitting down and talking about, you know, what was his experience like coming out to his parents, you know, and it was, you know, we're sitting down and we're like, you know, we don't want to put this exactly in the play, but we're wondering if you're willing to be generous with your experience and share it with us for the purpose of helping us understand because we've never walked in these shoes. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a room of, of straight women, both, you know, two adults and then like two young actresses. Um, and we can imagine what it's like a little bit, but we would like to hear from you. And he, you know, told us this amazing story of, you know, having to come out to his parents twice, you know, once in sixth grade. Uh, and his parents told him like, no, 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 we don't think so. You're, you're not ready. And, and again, later um, when he was uh, a little bit older and just, you know, all of the things that he thought and all of the fears that he had. And so, you know, like what we did was, um, it was like, all right, so we're sitting with this actress and it's like what we're looking for is we're taking those feelings, you know, like those thoughts and those feelings and those fears. And that's what we're building our story out of, mm -hmm. you know, so it wasn't recreating the story, um, but yeah, taking things out of it. So that's that's how we do it, you know, like we, sometimes there'll be things in the show that cast members will be like, secretly watching, you know, like the other scenes and like, yeah, that's my life or that's very similar to my life. It's impossible not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but no one ever plays their own issue. Yeah. Um, and it's also just not fair because this is a community performance. Right. And we don't want a family coming to the show and thinking, oh my God, you know, like my dirty laundry is out there for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. You know, that would just be also not fair. Right. It, it, it will... It, it's that distance thing again of mm -hmm. when you recognize that you're being indicted by what you're watching. Yeah. Now you're taking it so personal that you're not able to actually digest it. Yeah. That was like Brecht things. Brecht's like Bertold Brecht. Like yeah. that was sort of like his thing, right? Like the alienation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The audience has to laugh at uh, mother courage or like, you know, like see her as like an animal before they realize it's them. Yeah. You know, or yeah. Something. Well, I, I, his whole idea is that you, he, he wants people watching to be thinking about it. So mm -hmm. instead of connecting to on an emotional level, you connect on an intellectual level, which actually ties in pretty well with comedy because comedy 
not that you don't feel for characters, but you tend to speak to the head first. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's that sort of bypassing of the head into the heart that a lot of times allows you to laugh. Mm-hmm. I have a theory. Go for it. All right. Uh, 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 stop me if this sounds too ridiculous, but I'm curious what you think of this. Mm-hmm. I think like another thing that you kind of, that a lot of adults get out of improvising is when you're a kid, you know, play is, is genetically just part of our makeup. We begin playing as soon as that possibility is there. And so much, there, I think that there's like kind of two different kinds of play that you see little, little kids do. There's just spontaneous nonsense play, mm-hmm. which is just this sort of outpouring of energy that's in them. They, they're not inhibited yet. And so they just kind of like dance dance or do like nonsense songs based on nothing. But then there's also play that's built on imitating the world around them and imitating the people around them. And, and kids will imitate a lot of different personality types before they start kind of, you get like a certain amount of reinforcement about some behavior that you have that people applaud or, or whatever it speaks to you in some way they start imitating their previous imitations. Like basically you go from a point in your life where you can take on and cast off multiple roles until you start to sort of limit it down to a couple of roles that fit you until you get to a point about adolescence where it ossifies and now it's like I'm playing this one role constantly. You Mm -hmm. kind of forget that you're playing that role. It just becomes that's me, that's my personality. And that's about the point in your life when you start saying no, I can't do all these things. This is who I am and these other things I can't do. I think that like, that becomes a very limiting thing. And and there's this kind of instinct that leads a lot of adults into improv classes. You may not even recognize it, but it loosens up some of the pressure that this one role has on you and gives you the ability to start playing as other people again. Mm-hmm. And that play, like... It, it, I think is a really useful thing for your identity because when you can step in to be other people, you have enough distance to kind of look at yourself. You know what I mean? Like you can create a character who's like you in certain ways, but different enough from you that you can kind of uh, um, observe that character and digest that character and be applauded for that character and not identify yourself with that character. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the realm of like psychodrama, that distance isn't there. It's something much more confrontational. I haven't seen a lot of psychodrama, but I have seen shows where um, like an actor will burst into tears and, and you become angry and uncomfortable and resentful because you know that that is not, you're not holding up something for me to observe that we can both digest. Mm-hmm. You're forcing me to have to feel bad for you And it becomes this weird replacement thing of whoever you're angry at in your life, whoever didn't give you the affection that you need, you're um, extorting me as an audience member to have to give it to you now. And you kind of, you get angry, you resent it because again, it's that lack of distance. We're not both looking at this thing that's been created. You're like, you're forcing me into a relationship that I don't want to be in. Whereas that kind of Brechtian alienation thing you're not forced into a relationship with these characters. You're able to enjoy what you enjoy about them, but ultimately you have the choice to like, okay, I don't want to think about that mm-hmm. person anymore. But if you're forcing your nonsense into my face, it, it, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. It's like being stuck on a horrible date that you can't get out of with someone yeah. who's just crying in your face about their problems. <laughs> and it becomes like, it's manipulative. It's kind of ugly, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's my theory. I don't think I phrased it well. Uh, it sort of sounded like a few theories. It's a couple of theories cobbled <laughs> together. I'm looking for a bigger theory behind it. Oh my God. Oy. Aren't we all? I is, Here's where it comes back to the identity thing again, mm-hmm. is that in the realm of the performer that makes you feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. that person is, even though they're holding up this character that they created, it still is from this thing of they're demanding your affirmation mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there isn't, this is not a character that they have kind of separated out of their personality and turned into this sort of separate entity that we can all enjoy and relate to and understand. They're still just bringing themselves to it and forcing you to have to love them. And, and enforced love feels shitty to people. You can't be forced to love somebody. Yeah. It's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Anyway, it comes back down to, it's a super smart idea to not have people play out their own life problems, yeah. but to reflect others. 
because it creates a distance where we can see it and think about it rather than feel indicted by it, which is always, that's mm-hmm. the bad place. That's yeah. the place where you become defensive about what you're seeing and you deny what you're seeing. You mm-hmm. will not take it on its own terms. You just say no to it immediately and you start again at square one. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I like it. I like all of the different parts of your theory that you were talking about. It didn't seem ridiculous. And Great. I actually wanted to go back to um, uh, maybe like the first part yeah. like or part one where you were sort of talking about um, uh, solidifying your identity, you know, and like uh, uh, you asked me earlier, what do you think the kids would say they got out of it? And I, I really think a lot of them will say, you know, I had – in one word, in some words or another, like I had a place where I could be myself mm-hmm. or a different version of myself. Um, Cause in high school it's, I feel like what you're talking about, like where you have your own idea of who you are, I think in our development that might be a little bit more like college mm-hmm. level. You know, I think like, College kids are the assholes who are like, I know who I am and I am right, you Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) and like, I am going to argue with this professor Mm -hmm. um, because I've finally figured out who I am. Um, But I think in high school, it's, I don't know who I am, but I I think I know who everyone else wants me to be. Mm -hmm. And I better work real hard to be that person. Mm -hmm. Like, I think there's so much role in flexibility in like high school. And you see that starting in middle school. Mm -hmm. Sixth grade is like the craziest year. It's like you literally over the course of the year, like you see like just the innocence fade from their eyes, you know, (laughs) like you see them come in as like kids and leave as young adults and the seventh and go through that really painful seventh grade year. And like that really like, you know, sassy eighth grade year and then ninth grade they're they're back to being sort of like the youngest kids on the block and sort of sweet um and then all throughout you know through through it's high school a pretty perfect description of of that phase year by year oh my gosh it's a pretty incredible every year you know it's like the group dynamics change a little bit yeah. but they're always they're always the same i didn't even talk about social group work theory lewis <laughs> oh my god Jesus Christ. I didn't even talk about our summer program and our summer theater troupe. Well, you got two minutes, so choose which one you want to talk oh about. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, people turn tune into this podcast to talk about improv, right? Yeah. So I guess I'll, I guess I'll talk about both. All okay. right. So, um, <laughs> so we use uh, social group work theory um, which is just like the study of groups and this idea that groups go through like different stages, uh, all groups, you know, there's behaviors that you can expect when groups are in beginnings and behaviors you can expect when groups are sort of like in their middles and behaviors you can expect when they're um, at their endings. And um, I love our summer program because we run a summer camp for our middle school kids. And then I, I always lead a summer high school troop where um I teach improv to these high school kids and then uh, we teach them how to teach improv and they travel out to other summer camps of like younger kids and they teach improv. Sometimes like older people, they led a professional development. Um, uh, Recently did a show also here at the Magnet over the summer. Um, And I don't know, I think there's something really cool about that, about like taking high school kids and saying, this is this incredibly complicated theory, but... And I think you're capable of doing it. It's super empowering. Yeah, it's it's really empowering and it's it's really amazing. And the summers, the summer is another place where uh, kids don't have to deal with I think like the bullshit of like the school yeah. social setting. So uh, our summer, the summer performing arts troupe is the group that I I lead in the summer of kids who learn improv, like just improv theater, and it's usually just comedy um, and. Uh, uh, short form and long form, and then they develop their own improv workshops and travel to different camps and senior centers and uh, organizations and lead and teach improv all over New York City. It's like a feeling valued like that, Mm -hmm. you know, it already is just like such an amazing gift to give to somebody. Yeah, I I think so. I hope so. I I hope they feel I hope they feel valued. I think they're great. <laughs> <laughs> Good. 
Gaitlin Steitzer. Thank you for talking. Oh my gosh, Lewis Kornfeld, anytime. Yeah, you hear that, folks? Anytime. This has been the Magnet Theater Podcast. Thank you guys so much, as always, for listening. Thanks to Grant Goldberg, our engineer. Uh, thanks again to Caitlin Steitzer for being so wonderful. Uh, um, please check us out online to find out more about who we are and what we do. Magnettheater.com is the name of that website. Once again, thank you guys so very much for listening. I uh, hope things are going well. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. <laughs>